I'm Damien, and welcome to Screen Queens. I want to start today's episode by talking about a pot. Look, I know that's a weird place to start a film podcast, but just bear with me. The pot sits in the British Museum and is 2,500 years old. On the outside, a man clad entirely in black spears a woman through the neck. He is strong and victorious. She is pale, exposed, and utterly vanquished. This is our very first action scene involving a woman. And the vanquished woman is Penthesilea, our first female action hero. It doesn't seem like a great start, does it? Woman totally defeated by a man who, in the moment of killing her, realises that he loves her. Penthesilea wasn't even important enough to get a spot in Homer's Iliad. Instead, she gets one in, like, the lesser B-grade side stories. Then, if we fast-forward 2,000 years to Wolfgang Peterson's film Troy, it somehow gets even worse. The film is remarkably uninteresting, and that's despite having shirtless Brad Pitt, Eric Banner, and Orlando Bloom constantly flitting around the screen. But what is interesting about the film is despite being able to fit every conceivable thing about Troy into the film, even things that had no recording before Wolfgang Peterson, he doesn't manage to squeeze in Penthesilea. She would have complicated the neat divide of men doing things and women watching up on the walls and then bursting into tears. And so it seems that in some way she is still fighting the same battle 2,000 years on. She is an aberration. She challenges the typical divide of men being active and women being passive. How can we still have a problem with this? How do we still have an issue with seeing women kick butt on screen? Or maybe the question is better asked as... Why are there so few female action heroes? If you ask most people, they would be able to use their fingers to name the number of action female action heroes that they know. Yet Marvel every year gives us tens of other male action heroes. And so whenever we ask the question of why are there so few female X, Why are there so few female politicians? Why are there so few female CEOs? Why are there so few female judges? Why are there so few female top scientists or top engineers? Why are there so few female composers? I even get tired of hearing those questions being asked. We often get back half-baked, sad, depressing, and bleak answers. Yet those paltry answers are important because often they show that the barriers that exist can be broken down and that we can get more female action heroes. And so what I want to do today is I want to talk about some of the reasons that are offered as to why we don't have that many female action heroes. And then I want to talk about why female action heroes are so important, what they do on screen and what they offer different to their male counterparts. But this dearth of female action heroes is nothing new. It has plagued film's predecessors, who, in turn, have bequeathed those problems and those lackings onto film. 
If we start with literature, before we even get to film, it is bogged down by an overly masculine tradition. If you think of heroes going out in literature, you think of people like Beowulf slaying Grendel and then slaying Grendel's mother. You think of knights on horses and shining armor and all that rubbish, going out, saving a damsel in a castle, killing an ogre or two, and somehow marrying her before the day is over. And just add to that, some of our earliest novels in English create the same divide. Defoe's Mole Flanders tells of a woman 12 year a whore and five times married. What kind of adventure story is that? Just compare it to Robinson Crusoe, where although the dude is shipwrecked, through his own ingenuity is able to get himself off the island. And then all throughout the 19th century, young Victorian boys would have read adventure stories and read military stories with male action heroes doing incredible deeds. But despite that slightly grim picture of a really masculine literary action tradition, there are a few bright spots. One of the earliest poems we have in English tells of Judith, a biblical woman who is able to save her city from siege by decapitating an enemy commander. And so let us turn to Shakespeare. I know it's grim to turn to Shakespeare to look for a strong, confident woman who isn't either A, a witch, or B, a monster. But still, let's turn there. In Henry VI Part 1, Joan of Arc is a strong female action hero. She's able to take on John Talbot, who's kind of the equivalent of a British Anzac soldier. And in one of the scenes, she says, My courage try by combat if thou dest, and thou shalt find that I exceed my sex. Yeah, sure, whenever you hear those cringy lines of women in Shakespeare talking about their sex, But still, she does prove to be a strong military commander who can not only best men in duels, but can also siege and conquer cities. And now you might very well say, well, of course these military stories are male-dominated, because in the real world, the military has been male-dominated. And so this then just further filters into the action films that we're watching. But yet again, there are actually quite a number of instances where that's not the case, and an increasing number of examples in modern times. Some of the earliest commanders in both the East and the West have been military leaders. Lady Fu Hao led up to 13,000 men in a military campaign in China, and fun fact, she is a possible candidate for Disney's Mulan. In the 4th century BC, you had Eurydice and Olympia, relatives of Alexander, going at it hammer and tongs. You have Joan of Arc. In the American Revolutionary War, Deborah Sampson is one of the first people to fight. And as Meryl Streep told us in a fantastic speech in 2016, she was able to remove a bullet from her leg and sew it back up. Only a few decades later, Cathay Williams would be the first African-American woman to fight, and she fought in the American Civil War. And finally, in 1987, Australia had its first two female RAAF pilots, Deborah Hicks and Robin Williams. 
And yeah, sure, these are just a smattering of examples across millennia, but they are important nonetheless. Who wouldn't want to hear about a woman who believes so strongly in her country's right for independence that she disguises herself as a man, enlists, fights for 17 months, and after being shot, is so afraid of being discovered that she is a woman fighting and being kicked out of the forces, that she removes the bullet from her leg herself and sews it back up? Who wouldn't want to hear about that or watch a movie about that? And if she isn't an action hero, then I don't know who is. But this brings us to what I think is one of the biggest roadblocks facing female action heroes. And it's this idea that marketers or writers have in their head about their intended audience. Because they seem to imagine that girls don't want to hear about any of that icky, gross, violence stuff. And that boys only want to see men punching other men and being action heroes. And the exact same thought pattern seems to exist in comic books and video games. And the problem becomes magnified because the three have formed this kind of unholy trinity. That comic books go into video games and then video games can go into film and then film can go into comic books and video games. And you get this endless cycle going on. And if women can't break into any part of the cycle, it's just going to get worse and worse. So if we start with comic books, the earliest comics had that cringy split of four women and four boys. The four women comics were either marriage comics like True Bride-to-Be Romances, or young women working comics such as Nellie the Nurse or Tessie the Typist. Sadly, there isn't Pamela the Parliamentarian or Denise the Doctor or Linda the Lawyer. For some reason, they're not there. I wasn't writing. Don't blame me. But then with the rise of comics that we know them, women are largely left out of these. So we have figures like Spider-Man, we have Captain America, we have, you know, all those other people that Marvel is shoving onto our screens over the next couple of years. But when women are included, they're largely included for a male gaze. Tiny waists, huge tits, and revealing outfits. Sure, the men have to be as burly as anything, but that, I think, seems to serve a purpose of actually making them effective fighters against all the villains that they fight with. When Wonder Woman quite recently changed her costume to provide her with armour, because, you know, as Batman informs us, armour is pretty important, readers and viewers were furious. One comic designer, Scott Campbell, commented, she's an Amazonian warrior. She's not in the Taliban. And they were forced to change her outfit. And so it seems that the presentation of women in comic books actually doesn't really fit their superhero abilities. It just creates super boners. For instance, there's an image of Spider-Woman climbing the wall. I'm sure we'll put this up on Instagram somewhere. And instead of, you know, just climbing the wall, she it shows her back curved, ass up in the air, and drawn to literally accentuate her ass cheeks. Like, it, it is impossible for it to get more sexual than that. And so this seems to be largely the legacy that comic books have left and that comic books bequeath onto film. That you have action hero men and then women, if they are action heroes, are sexualized. 
Just a quick tangent, there's a wonderful initiative online called the Hawkeye Initiative, which redraws male comic book heroes in the same sexualized position as their female counterpart. And when you see the images side by side, you realize how drastically different and even ridiculous their presentation is. So what does all of this have to do with film? Well, considering that in our era, the largest and biggest budget action films are comic book films, I think an awful lot. Between 2017 and 2020, Marvel will be putting out 35 films. I know it's a lot. It's, it's, it's too many. It's, I don't, I don't want to see them. But the point is, is that so far we know that only two of them will feature a female action hero. That is Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel. So far, none of them that we know of will feature a female director. So to put that in perspective, that means that around 6% of your action leads are female. So you have around 6% female representation. Donald Trump's cabinet, the whitest and most male since Reagan, has 18% female representation. Donald Trump is beating you. Jesus Christ. Like, I know numbers aren't the be-all and end-all, but fuck, that is terrible. Sorry, I just needed a moment to calm my John Oliver level of indignation. But now let's turn to the other part of the triangle, which is video games, and they haven't particularly helped either. Since the video game crash of 1983, video games have been aggressively marketed towards boys. And the result has been that so many of their protagonists are male. We don't need to get into Gamergate here, but it becomes important with film when you have video games filtering into film. So for instance, with Assassin's Creed becoming a significant action film at the end of 2016, it paves the way for other video games to move in that way, which will only magnify the male-dominated presence in action films. But it also plays another role. Marketers and producers now have an increasing eye on the revenues they can get outside a film. And there are two really big areas there, video games and toys. And if we have video games being marketed for boys, that means that they turn their attention towards films where you can create a video game that's easily marketable to boys. It's the same side on the action figures. In a depressingly fitting follow-up to the Reebok disaster, where they recreated Ripley's boots from Alien, but didn't make any in women's sizes, there was a noted controversy in 2016 regarding Ray dolls. Ray is obviously the hero, the key figure of episode 8. And yet the question was asked, where are all the Ray dolls? Far less were made, and they weren't included in packs with other dolls because they didn't think that they would be able to sell them to boys, or didn't even bother. And so we see that this marketing idea and the drive to earn extra money off film is causing real problems for female action heroes. God, that sounds grim. It's almost surprising that we have any female action heroes at all. Given all of these forces and this history, which simply leads up to a male-dominated action business. 
but we do have female action heroes, and we have some remarkable ones. But before I get into the ones that we all know and love, I want to quickly talk about some of the earliest, and I mean the earliest, female action heroes. And the two screen queens that I want to talk about are Mary Fuller and Helen Holmes, both stars in the 1910s. The 1910s, people. Silent film era. Mary Fuller starred in What Happened to Mary, a 1912 production where she needs to show daring and skill to escape from bondage and to avoid captors in New York City. Unfortunately, the follow-up to this is Who Will Mary Marry, which is a bit ugh for our purposes. But Helen Holmes starred in The Hazards of Helen, and these were 12-minute episodes, and around 119 of these came out throughout the 1910s. And it's hard to understate how famous Helen Holmes would have been. Imagine, like, Beyonce or Taylor Swift levels of fame, and you'll get something pretty similar. Helen Holmes in The Hazards of Helen does an incredible amount of tricks. From a speeding car, she will jump onto the railway, and yes, she did do her own stunts. She does similar tricks where she might jump off a horse's back or speed a car down a mountain. All of these to capture train robbers or the episode's villains. It's pretty incredible. Also, she wears trousers, which was a huge deal from the 1910s. But what's sad is that few people know or remember Helen and Mary. We all know Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and Harold Lloyd for their incredible physical stunts and physical comedy. And yet these women who do equally, if not more, remarkable work are forgotten. So hopefully putting this podcast out into the ether will tick a few people to Mary and Helen. But it's only really with the 1970s that we start seeing the Western female action leads as we conceive them, as we know them. Between the 1910s and the 1970s, probably the closest women got to a gun on film was either A, being a femme fatale in a film noir, not a particularly flattering role for women, or B, being a Bond girl. But being a Bond girl just fits into the exact same marketing strategy that I've already talked about, which is the idea that marketers have that an action film needs three things. Explosions, a dude who men in the audience can look up to, and a chick in the film that men in the audience can be attracted to. The 1970s changed that. 1977, Introducing Princess Leia. Not only is she the most accurate blaster shooter of all the characters in the original trilogy, thank you Star Wars nerds on the internet for telling me that fact, but also her competing roles make her one of the most complex characters in the trilogy. She is a princess, but she is also a member of the Imperial Senate, a rebel spy, and a key military commander in the rebel force. She is initially a damsel in distress, she is Luke's sister, and she has the most snarky, witty, sassy attitude you will ever find. One of my favourite lines in the original Star Wars is when she's brought aboard to meet Governor Tarkin, and she she says, Governor Tarkin, 
I should have expected to find you holding Vader's leash. I recognised your foul stench when I was brought on board. And even when Luke and Han turn up to rescue her, she never drops that snark. When Luke appears, she says, aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? And very quickly, she steps out of that damsel role. When they go to swing across the gap, she is the one who is able to shoot the opposing stormtrooper. It is Princess Leia who organises the defence and evacuation of Hoth. It is Princess Leia who rescues Luke after his duel with Darth Vader. But I think the most remarkable thing about Princess Leia, leaving aside the ridiculous hair and yes, the gold bikini, yes, I know it's a low point, is that countless little girls could throw on a white sheet and become this strong, flawed yet confident woman who is capable of saving the galaxy. But I want to talk about the gold bikini for a moment. Because doesn't it remind us of something? Doesn't that image of a woman exposed and slightly sexualized call to mind a few things? The first would be our old hero, Penthesilea. I promised that she would become important. Just like Leia, she is portrayed as exposed, as fair, as being subject to the male gaze and male penetration. But the exact same thing seems to happen with Ripley at the end of Alien. Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, is just out of this world. (laughs) Haha, fantastic. But in that, she doesn't seem to have any real romantic attachments throughout the entire film. She is a really coldly rational figure. And the thing that she seems to care most about is the goddamn cat she saves early on. But right at the end of the film, Ripley undresses down to essentially a white singlet and white underwear. And the alien, that symbol of a phallus, and I'm not doing that in kind of the ridiculous, everything's a phallus kind of way, but really the original artist drew it as a penis, is lurking and waiting. And this moment is really, really odd, and yet repeats itself over and over again with female action heroes. It provides a moment of vulnerability, and yet it still panders to that male heterosexual gaze of being like, damn, she's hot. And the problem is these moments are just gratuitous. We already know that Ripley is trapped with an incredibly intelligent, vicious, cold-blooded alien in a small spaceship. We already know that she is essentially screwed. We already know that Princess Leia is trapped to this gross giant worm and needs some way of getting out. We don't need them in a gold bikini. We don't need them in a see-through white top. And yet they're there. But I think on the positive side that we can compare this with the end of Aliens, that is the 1986 film directed by James Cameron. At the end of Aliens, Ripley goes up against the mother alien. We'll leave all Freudian associations to one side. Thank you very much. And what's really interesting is that this moment sees two women fighting for their children. 
Ripley, in what is one of her most sadistic moments, has previously killed all of the alien's children, and she wants revenge. Now the two battle it out, and this is where sci-fi becomes really, really interesting, because Ripley is able to get into this massive mechanized suit to punch and smash at this alien. And it reminds me of Furiosa and her prosthetic limb in Mad Max. Even when the limb isn't attached, such as in the hose fight scene where she's able to punch Max with her stump, she is a capable fighter. And yet her prosthetic limb is not only a tool for driving that immense truck across the desert, but also augments and actually improves her fighting ability. But what's great about the Ripley victory is that it is not a complete moral victory. This isn't good has vanquished evil. It's more complicated than that. Ripley has had to make difficult decisions throughout the film, and some of those decisions we will disagree with. At points she is rude, at points she is callous, at points she is downright cruel. And yet these flaws just make her all remarkable. We don't want female action heroes that are unattainable, that are perfect in every way, that are incredibly intelligent, incredibly brave, brilliant fighters, undefeatable, and also really hot. We want people who are flawed, because that means that we simply do not emulate them, we engage with them. And now I want to turn to another mother action figure, because I think this is quite interesting, that there are actually a significant number of mothers who become action figures. And that's Sarah O'Connor in Terminator, in particular Terminator 2, which I think is one of the greatest action films of all time. Not only does she escape from the mental institute with little to no help, she isn't a damsel in distress, all she needs is a paperclip and she will bust the ass of every single security guard in there. But she makes difficult and yet tactical decisions continually throughout the movie, all for her son and all for the future of humanity. A mother who perhaps does not fight for as laudatory or as selfless aims is the bride or Beatrix Kiddo in Kill Bill, but we all know her as Uma Thurman, so that's what she's going to be labelled as. She fights for revenge. But interestingly, on the mother point, this is our third female action hero who is a mother. And importantly, in all three, the mother, the father figure is either A, absent, or B, in the case of Kill Bill, trying to kill the mother. And so the mother has to step into this kind of masculine space and adopt this aggressive masculine posture in order to defend herself and her family. And so still, these women, at some level, I think, are being portrayed as not conforming to typical levels of femininity. It is not that any of the films condemn that, they all simply mark it as odd. And I'm not saying that I don't find them all wonderful, I think they are, but I think still in their representation, some problems niggle below the surface. But anyway, on to Kill Bill. 
I think one of the most remarkable things about Kill Bill is actually the other side women, for want of a better description, that the bride comes up against. The first is Vanita, who is a member of the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, um, who are the people who originally attack Uma in that bride memory scene she has at the beginning of the film. And importantly, Vanita and Uma Thurman need to stop their fight because Vanita's daughter arrives home. And it's this odd moment that we recognise that both of these two women are mothers who have just been smashing each other for the last five minutes. Then there is Oren Ishii, or Cottonmouth, played by, of course, Lucy Liu. And what's interesting here is that she has already taken her revenge against a man who has done her wrong. She has killed brutally the pedophilic head of the mob who killed her mother and father. And by the time she is 20, she is one of the top female assassins in the world. And then, of course, there is Ellie Driver and that wonderful scene where Uma Thurman and her battle each other with swords until Uma plucks out her remaining eye. It is fantastic. But what does all this get us? Is Uma Thurman and Kill Bill simply enacting that kind of eye-for-an-eye revenge that our society has repeatedly condemned as fruitless and pointless for our own entertainment? Do Sarah O'Connor's actions do anything more than condemning humanity to fight a decades-long war against the technologically superior Terminators? Do Princess Leia's actions do anything else than perpetuate the cycle of light against dark, rebels against empire? A Ripley's action simply attempts in vain to protect humanity against the aliens that will come in due to men's greed and stupidity. It is easy to look beyond the end of these films and consider that for all of their actions, the women's actions were in vain. And I was really struck by that sense of futility at the end of Star Wars Rogue One, which features Jin Erso, who I think is yet another worthy addition into the female action hero Hall of Fame. But at the end of that film, despite their martyrdom, despite them transmitting up into the rebel ships the information about the Death Star, we know what will happen throughout the next successive episodes. That in episode four, they will build a Death Star. In episode six, they will build another Death Star. And in episode seven, they will build something that isn't a Death Star, but essentially is an even larger Death Star. And knowing Disney, I'm sure we'll have more Death Stars of increasing size in coming episodes, and they can neatly stack together like Babushka dolls. But the Sisyphean nature of female action heroes' tasks, that is, that they push the boulder up the hill only for it to roll back down again, actually marks a lot of action heroes. Superman might be able to turn back the world, but in the very next comic book or the very next film, there is some other villain who bears kryptonite. What really marks out the female action hero is that this continual struggle against a perennial tide has resonances in the modern world. It has resonances with women and feminist liberation movements across the globe. And that, I think, is the real value of female action heroes. 
It's not that they can fight and kick ass. It's not that they can fly a spaceship or they can leap off a horse onto the rail car. It's just that they show grit, determination, and perseverance against unyielding and continual odds. But I think no one can put it better than the late and great Carrie Fisher. Movies are dreams, and they work on you subliminally. You can play Leia as capable, independent, sensible, a soldier, a fighter, a woman in control. Control being, of course, a lesser word than master. But you can portray a woman who is a master and get through all the female prejudice if you have her travel in time, if you could add a magical quality, if you're dealing in fairy tale terms. Although laced with irony, and those conditions, those ifs, just pile on top of one after the other, Fisher typically encapsulates with wit the challenges, and yet, the incredible power female action heroes wield. Yes, they may be escapist, yes, they may be fantastic, and yes, they may not have to wear a bra in space. But that doesn't mean they can't evoke change. That doesn't mean they can't awake inside of us something special or something awe-inspiring. And they may even allow women to get through female prejudice. Not in a galaxy far, far away, but here and now. And become not just in control, but masters.